of watching you all walk in here because I feel like there's so many different realities walking through the door, you know, the same, seemingly the same experience, probably so many different interpretations going on. Tonight I want to talk about perception and the power of thought. Sharon um, briefly mentioned this um, saying from the Buddha a few weeks ago, that we are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Scary, isn't it? He goes on to say, your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. It's a pretty powerful statement. After sitting here for, how long is it, five weeks? You probably know to the hour. You probably are getting some taste of how, how um, bad an enemy our unguarded thoughts can be, how powerful thoughts can be. I mean, thoughts are amazing. They really do create the world in a very um, concrete sense. You know, somebody had the thought, let's buy a meditation center. And 20 years later, this is here, and all of us are here. You know, as a result of that, as an effect of that one thought. It's quite amazing. And so we so easily get so um, lost, tormented in our thoughts. How much of your meditation time has been spent in some kind of struggle? People are laughing. I didn't even finish yet. (laughs) I guess I don't have to. You, You know. And when, say yesterday, that tangle of unbearable experience brought about by thought, where's that tangle of thought now? What was so difficult about it? Why do those thoughts have so much power to torment us, to assail us? Because when we really look at thought as a thought, what is it? If you take a really neutral thought, the carpet is red, gone, ephemeral, there's nothing to it. This is from Dingo Kensi Rinpoche. Like waves, all the activities of this life have rolled endless on, yet they have left us empty-handed. Myriads of thoughts have run through our minds, but all they have done is increase our confusion and dissatisfaction. When a rainbow appears, we see many beautiful colors, yet a rainbow is not something we can clothe ourselves with or wear as an ornament. It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in the mind in exactly the same way. They have no tangible reality 
or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thought should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. Does that make you feel better? No logical reason. Well, I want to talk a little bit about some of the, in a way, they are logical reasons, how we get so caught in thoughts. Why do we get so enslaved? Two specific areas I want to speak about, the areas of unwise attention, which is fueled by misperception. So those are the two areas I want to speak about. Unwise attention, basically, paying attention to the wrong thing. Wrong, meaning it takes us into more suffering. So in thought, unwise attention is getting caught in paying attention to the content, to the emotional story, to not seeing thought as thought, not bringing attention right to the bare experience. And misperception is what fuels this unwise attention. So those are the two ways I want to talk about it. Really, the beginning of our confusion of of not seeing the ephemeral nature of thought and of being so tormented, spending our whole meditation, you know, trying to have better thoughts or no thoughts, that would be the preference, of course. But since that's a rare occurrence, better thoughts would do. And, you know, hating ourselves, fearing our thoughts when they're not what we like. It's really, it's so much suffering. Of course, the the root of it is not seeing that thought is nothing to be afraid of. But what fuels this on a very um, basic level And I find this particularly fascinating, so I hope I don't bore you to death with it. But uh, the beginning of our confusion is the level of basic perception. Perception is that when there's a sense contact, you hear a sound. The moment of hearing is just hearing. Perception is the recognition the discernment of what it is. So that's hearing a bell, knowing it is bell. It involves memory, but it's one of the basic mental factors that is said to arise in every mind moment. In fact, when the Buddha speaks of the five aggregates, five um, factors of mind and body that he calls a human being, each arising in each moment, Perception is one of these five. So this um, recognition, sort of the memory recognition of a sense contact is perception. The Dalai Lama said once that all of our difficulties stem from mistaken perception. All of them. That's why there is so much emphasis on direct experience or true knowledge. So mistaken perception is in a way, on a moment-to-moment basis, at the very root of so much of the following confusion and suffering. 
So what does this mean, mistaken perception? Why and how does it happen? Well, you might have guessed that when our old friends happen to be present in the mind, our old friends, the afflictive emotions, are our three root afflictions, greed, hatred, and confusion or delusion in any of their manifestations. When, in a moment of perception, one of these three, greed, hatred, or confusion, that mental factor is present, it tends to distort the perception. And if we're not aware of it, it's really interesting because we actually perceive incorrectly. And then from that perception comes more interpretations and emotions, and then we can actually act on that incorrect perception. So examples, in one, one place that we teach in the desert in the spring, the meditation hall has a big sign on it. It's called a preceptory. It has this big sign. And one woman who was obviously having a very bad day told me as she walked up to it, she looked at it, really looked at it, and read purgatory. That's just <laughs> what it said. This mistaken perception just clouded. We do this in lots of ways. Um, when the mind is filled with fear, we can't actually perceive a person or a thing that's fairly innocuous as being really fearful or really ugly. One time I was in the hospital and um, was kind of out of it for a few days and I was under drugs and in a lot of pain. And then a nurse came in very early in the morning to wake me up, to weigh me, about six in the morning. And I woke up in a lovely frame of mind, <laughs> angry but also really filled with fear, this kind of weird paranoia you can get in the hospital. And I, I visually perceived her as demonic. I mean, she really looked like an evil demon person to me. And once perceived, then we act on it. So I practically bit her head off, the poor lady. The next morning she came, same woman, same time. I was in a different state of mind, and I saw a very nice, scared-looking lady <laughs> to wake me up. And I felt really bad. <laughs> but you see, it's, it's not even we see something and then think about it in a different way. We actually perceive incorrectly. And once that perception has entered incorrectly, it leads to all kinds of actions, all kinds of doing. And this is basically how we can, in our actions, get so far afield so quickly. Well, the examples I have given are ones of aversion, but the, um, really the root distortion, the root that leads to misperceptions, is the mental factor of delusion or ignorance. And we've talked about craving, we've talked about aversion, we've talked about delusion, but what we can begin to see is, is delusion is only another mental factor. Ignorance, delusion, confusion. We can actually begin to recognize it when it's present, and when it's not. It's not like delusion is some massive, monolithic, unchanging state 
that we're chipping away at little by little and someday it'll be gone. It arises and passes in moment of mind of the mind just like any other state. So it has the characteristics confusion, cloudiness, dullness. And what tends to happen when there's confusion in the mind is we don't recognize correctly. Sometimes we'll just see uh, or see or hear or feel or think a part of something and then uh, the, out of not seeing it all, the, the ignorance will use memory to supply the rest, but it comes up with an inaccurate perception. And once I was walking in the woods in Switzerland behind a, re- a retreat we were leading, very nice, lovely woods with my boyfriend, and I looked over to the side and I saw this huge yellow and white striped circus tent And I thought, that's really weird for a circus tent to be in these quiet woods. And I said as much to my friend. And he looked at me like I was really weird. Because, of course, as I looked again, there was no circus tent. It was just a big rock with a little bit of yellow lichen sort of running on it. That's the way that ignorance functions in a moment to give a misperception. We sort of recognize a few things, don't either look clearly or don't have all the information, but ignorance makes up a perception. Well, that one's not too difficult to see through. Some can be much more complicated. But just to recognize the state of the mental factor of confusion itself, begins to be very helpful. So this quality of of dullness, of just sort of knowing, in a way you know you don't have a clue what's going on. So one way it can manifest, it happens to me a lot, more than I care to admit, actually. I'll be driving somewhere, and that's just the point. All of a sudden, I won't have a clue where I am, what part of the world I'm in, what season of the year it is. Like often I'll be driving into Barry and I'll just have this moment, a complete delusion. And I'll have, is this April? Is this October? Is it Christmas time? Is Christmas time? And then I'll, I'll have to kind of look around for clues as to the season. And then I'll kind of remember what, where I'm going and what I'm doing. And I can sort of get back to, all oh, right, this is October. We're in the middle of the three-month course. That's, that's delusion, one way. The classic example that's given in the, in the Buddhist texts all the time is a, a kind of twilight state, in kind of the twilight zone, really, where they give this classic example of you're walking in a forest and it's twilight. So you can just see, but not quite clearly. And in that seeing, you see something kind of hanging from a tree, and that moment of recognition, oh, it's a snake. That's the moment of perception, that moment of recognition, ah, a snake. And then, if it's somewhere where there's poisonous snakes, or depending on your relationship to a snake, that moment of recognition leads to 
more thoughts, oh no, I wonder how many snakes, I better get out of here, leads to emotions, to fear. It begins to color the way we relate to the whole forest. Oh, I thought it was nice here, but really it's dangerous. It's not good to be here alone at night. In Thailand, that's really true. To travel, to walk in a forest at night without a flashlight uh, is literally risking your life because there's poisonous snakes all over the place and they won't bother you. But if you step on them, well, (laughs) it's too bad for you. So it really could inspire a feeling of danger and we act on it. Now, if you go to a closer and really look and the delusion clears away, you might see it's a hanging vine. And again, that affects the way we think, the emotions that come up, the way we act, we might keep walking, the feeling of how we feel about the rest of the forest. It's very powerful, this one perception, and it leads into a whole field of reaction. So that's the basic way that misperception functions, especially fueled by ignorance. The Dalai Lama again. He says the antidote to ignorance is the correct perception of things because this dispels the visiting obscurations. That sounds easier than we might think, just simply the correct perception of things. That's what our practice is all about here. It's not sometimes as complicated as we might make it. It's simply learning how to have a correct perception of experience, moment after moment after moment. And all that matters is just this one moment, having a correct perception. But this inaccurate, this misperception, mistaking a rock for a tent, or a rope, or a vine for a snake, not perceiving accurately. This is the basic misperception that we are uh, experiencing about ourselves moment after moment after moment. We're misperceiving our mind and body experience. And this leads to the sense of self, to craving, to aversion, and to all the attendant confusions. From the point of perception, the reason that we misperceive so greatly and so ongoing, in every mind moment, as we said before, there's a lot of mind moments, 17 trillion in the blink of an eye, A trillion, that's like million, billion, trillion. That's a lot. I don't know how many zeros. It's a lot of mind moments. If perception is arising in every mind moment, even forget the numbers. It's happening a lot. There's no way that we're noticing every single perception that's arising. I assume. I assume. I don't speak for everybody. What we're calling me, you know, the perception that seems like a continuous ongoing me 
we actually can begin to notice this breakdown as we get quieter, as our mindfulness increases. But what we're calling me is a series of constantly arising and passing experiences, whether it's physical sensation, just rising and falling, rising and falling, changing, with perceptions rising and falling, Vedana, feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, coming and going, coming and going. The knowing faculty, coming and going with each new sense contact, or any of the mental formations, any mental factors, any emotions. It's just each of these coming and going, coming and going so quickly, one after the other, not in any particular order. But it's so fast when we don't really look it seems really solid. It seems continuous. In some ways, it's like, have you ever looked at a color photograph under a magnifying glass? This amazed me. I just did this a couple of years ago. I didn't, I didn't know that it was just, it's just a series of dots of, I think there's four or five different colors of dots. And if you look at the photograph, that's all it is. Sort of like the uh, impressionist pointillism paintings, that when you get up close, it's just dots and there's no recognizable form at all. Then when we pull back, the form, the picture, the photograph clicks in and it looks really solid. So that's our practice, is to really look deeply, to not to stop at the surface appearance. And it's not easy to do. Because just seeing through it once, it's not quite enough. Because how many times are we re-experiencing the misperception, the sense that we're solid, and not even uh, aware of it in a conscious way? It's sort of a, a background perception that might be going on a great deal of the time And when we don't really look, when we don't really explore, uh, it's easy to take the perception for granted, kind of just an assumption of this is how it is. We just seem solid and continuous. And in fact, it's so obvious that even if intellectually we try to understand the idea of uh, no no continuous separate self, the idea of impermanence. And we really can, on some level, understand it, but it isn't quite enough. That's why the meditation, the ongoing looking, 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 just to experience what's actually happening. Because just the intellectual understanding isn't enough to counter the ongoing misperception that we might not be aware of. And it's so easy to assume that because we perceive things in a certain way, that's how it is. Because we mostly agree on perceptions, that's even another step. We tend to agree, so that's really how it must be. And in fact, a lot of people here might mention in interviews, they'll talk about an experience and say, of course, I could never explain this to anybody else who wasn't here. You know, I'd sound crazy. 
And sometimes people even wonder themselves because the perceptions you're starting to become aware of don't always match with the ongoing assumptions of, of how things are that, that we've been uh, living with all our lives without recognizing it. I read one of the little stories by Oliver Sacks, you know, the neurologist who writes about all kinds of different uh, strange neurological distortions, sort of, really interesting. And uh, he was writing, this one's about a man who was blind. I forget whether he was born blind or became blind very young. And up until his 40s or 50s, he was blind and he had uh, quite adapted. He worked, I think, as a, as a masseur in his local YMCA and uh, was going to get married. And at some point here, they found out, doctors found out they could do an operation that would uh, take off the cataracts and restore his sight, which everyone was excited about and which he did. And what was so interesting, really poignant, why Oliver Sacks was writing about it, is of course when the bandages were first off, his, his fiancée and people were there, oh wow, what do you see? Well, of course, he couldn't make any sense whatsoever out of the visual field. It was just this jumble, you know, of sight and form and actually scary because it didn't conform at all to the world as his perceptions had formed it. And he had to really work hard at it. And I think over time he got so he could make some sense of the visual world. But it was never easy for him. In fact, it was uh, very anxiety provoking. And he would say sometimes he'd, just, he'd be eating and he'd just, with a knife and fork and trying to do it in the, in the way sighted people do, and at some point, it would just get so stressful that he'd just say, I have to give it up. I have to lapse back into my older behavior. Because for him, all the perception and the construction of the world was in touch and sound. So shaving in a mirror was extremely difficult. Just closing his eyes and shaving in the dark, no problem. And in fact, in some way, his life really, the quality of his life, really deteriorated after the operation and he could begin to see because he never could really make that perceptual shift. Well, that's so interesting how I just take for granted what I see is how it is. It's not true at all. It's not the least bit how it is. But we've gotten so used to these perceptions. So that's our practice here to look deeply, moment after moment, into our mind and body experience without preconceptions, or at least noticing our preconceptions, and letting the actual perception of what happens be received without having to twist it to fit a preconceived notion. And there can be times in practice where we literally begin to perceive the body in a different way, where there's just a sense of arising and passing sensations, sometimes slowly, sometimes more quickly. Sometimes nothing lasts longer than a flash. And one time someone was describing to 
Sayadaw, a sense of this sensation arises in my arm and it's moving up the arm and they were describing how it was moving all over. And he just looked and said, nothing's moving. There's not one sensation that's moving all around. It's, you know, lots of different sensations arising, passing, arising, and passing. We're giving it some kind of continuity with thought. That's an interpretation. So it's really going back and being with the sense contact, the perception. And so sometimes sensations are rising and passing, no longer than a flash. Sometimes there's no outline, no shape to the body, no sense of where the body begins or ends. Sometimes it's, uh, you'd just be noticing a sensation, and then I'll notice an image arise of knee, and then I'll notice an image arise of knee in relationship to body, and I'll become vividly aware. That's all that's happening. A sensation arising in awareness, an image arising in awareness. Just because there's an image of knee, that's not the same, actually, as solid body sitting here. It's simply an image arising and passing. And in that moment, there can literally be no perception whatsoever of solid body. Now, a lot of times we don't like this too much. And in fact, when this isn't a thought, when it's an actual perception, there's no solidity, there's no body one can even refer to, just very fast arising and passing. It can feel quite threatening. And often fear will come up as a result of uh, this shift in perception. But that's all it is, fear arising. So that somehow we're going to lose our body and never be able to come back together again. But I'll say, so far, of all the three-month retreats that I've heard of, nobody has disintegrated into a cloud and not been able to find their body and walk out of here again. Because <laughs> nothing is changing, actually. You know? Our perceptions can begin to shift when we're just meeting the direct experience. But it's not that the body was solid and now it's disintegrating. It's the same as it's always been, constantly changing. And in fact, the Buddha said once, if you must identify with something, it's better if it be the body because the mind is changing even so much faster. At least the body is changing a little bit more slowly. It was just his way of saying, don't bother identifying with anything. But this fear comes up as if somehow it's all going to fly away and we're not going to be able to function anymore. So rationally talking about it isn't going to keep that fear from coming up. I just want to mention that it's often a normal response. You don't need to believe the fear. That's just another uh, emotion, mind state going away. With wise attention, you just notice the fear is fear. Just because fear arises doesn't make it true. 
just because a thought arises with strong emotion attached doesn't make that thought more true. The rug is red is as equally important a thought as, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to walk again. It's not, a thought is just a thought. The strong emotion doesn't make it more accurate, but we tend to believe it because there's strong emotion. A friend of mine was telling me once his experience in a retreat, this sense of really seeing the non-solidity and the sense of self-attachment to mind and body was falling away for him. And he said, I don't know, I loved this image. I don't know if it translates. He said, it's, it's not that anything's gone away or changed. He said, it's like a cake that's baked in a pan. And after you've run a knife through and loosened the cake, so it's still sitting in the pan. It still has the same shape. But if you turn the pan over, the cake just drops out. There's nothing attaching it anymore. He said it felt like that for him. It looks the same, but there's no more attachment in it. Well, that's how it is for us. (laughs) We really are. We're already cakes in the pan, and we've already, the knife's already been slid under. We just haven't noticed it yet. So our practice is really to bring this wise attention into our experience. With unwise attention, which we practice a lot without realizing it, it's unwise attention that gives thoughts so much power. It's what makes thoughts such a burden. With unwise attention, we tend to isolate either a particular perception or the thought that arises from that perception, and then really dwell on the thought, on the interpretation, on the emotions that might come up in it. Really dwell on it, and it makes it seem true. Just because it's like the more we think about it, the truer it must be somehow. And then we don't even notice or we shut out perceptions that don't match. This is unwise attention. So, for example, you can see how we do this in our perception of ourselves. And I'm talking about more on the personality level, so to speak. Think about whatever your most recent perception or description of yourself is, or how you think of yourself over the long term, for example, and how that Description, whatever it is, it's bound to be a little bit one-sided and inaccurate. Any description is. But how it can be so solidified from a particular perception that's probably inaccurate and really dwelt on. I'll give you an example that I had forgotten until recently in my life, but I see how this memory and this perception has colored my relationship to things for years. When I was about, I don't know, 10 or 11 in the fifth grade, I was taken along with some other girls and put in what I think was probably formally called a remedial gym class. Of course, in the charming way of children, and I know this isn't politically correct, but this is what we called ourselves 
We called ourselves the retard gym class. And so there was about 10 of us, and I, I don't know what occasioned our needing remedial gym, <laughs> you know, but for some reason we were in this class, and so the perception was we were total klutzes, weren't fit to play kickball or whatever we were supposed to be playing with the other, other girls in the class, and had to go in this special, special class to learn how to function. That's all I can remember about it. I, I can't remember at all what we did in this class. But it really solidified my self-perception of being a very uncoordinated person who was no good at sports. And as a result, I, ca I came to really uh, dislike any kind of physical games as soon as the idea, oh, let's go play baseball, would come up, I would freeze inside. There'd be the perception, well, I'm no good at baseball, and no one wants to play with me because I was in the remedial gym class. And it's persisted to this day. I mean, I, I didn't even remember about this gym class until this spring. Something brought it up. But any kind of doing any kind of um, sort of form physical activity Walking is fine. I mean, anybody, I can just take a walk. That's okay. But anything with some kind of form to it, I immediately have a resistance, and it's very strong to the point that even if I do the activity, I don't enjoy it. So that's really set, that perception. So it's how an early perception in the memory of it can, can really structure our ideas of ourselves. And that's unwise attention to really dwell on it, because what that blocks out, what I don't let in, is all the times that I do physical things and really enjoy it. I really like to swim. I like to take walks. I like to do qigong. If I don't get into comparing it to a form and trying to do it right or to look good. But if I, I don't notice the times that I enjoy it, I only notice the times that I don't because it fits into all the interpretations that have arisen out of that perception. We do this in our practice as well. We've made a, have a certain perception and then we'll, rather than let in the perception that's actually arising, we'll twist it, we'll misperceive to try and make it meet our previous idea. So like that sense of solidity of body, when it goes away, rather than saying, oh, the solidity of body wasn't really true, we think, oh my god, I'm losing it. Something's happening. Or in another, in another way, often people will report, my mindfulness is gone. My concentration is gone. I can't hold to any object. As soon as the object comes, I can't stay with it. And we'll question and we'll find out, of course you can't stay with it because the object isn't staying. As soon as it comes, it vanishes. But it's easy for people to say, oh, I have no mindfulness. I should be able to just glom on to this arising appearance and stay there as long as I want. So our challenge with wise attention is simply to come back to the direct perception. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, to have a correct perception, we need to have a direct encounter. 
That's all we're trying to do here. Have a direct encounter with each of the six sense contacts without preconceived notions. That's our challenge in any moment. Can we let go of all self-definition, all concepts, all explanations, and just be with whatever it is, pressure, hearing, seeing, thinking, emotion. Can we just be with the sensation in the body without having to have an explanation, without having to understand how it relates to my childhood and its arising because of this particular conglomeration of experiences that I've had, and that if I could really open and get to the bottom of it, I know all my sadness would open up and I would really move in practice. Could we just feel tightness without all of that? It's not so easy. We used to go in and report to Sayada Upandita. I mean, really, all he wants is pressure arose. I noted it. After the third note had passed, I went back to the breath. He doesn't want this pressure arose. It's from my childhood and on and on and on. In fact, after a while, they just look at us and, you know, where? as if to say, where are you guys getting this stuff? You know, it's so simple. Pressure arose. You noticed what happened to it. It went away. You make everything so complicated. We do. And the point is not to note perfectly. The point is with all our complications, with all our misperception, it's keeping us from noticing the radiance of truth, our own radiant nature. This is from Huang Po. Can we stop being blinded by our sight, our hearing, our feeling and knowing, and from the conceptual thinking arising from it? When blinded by this, we don't perceive the radiance of the source. When we're not deluded by conceptual thinking, this source will appear like the sun rising through the empty sky and illuminating the whole universe. Simply being with the actual experience, with the actual sense contact, have a direct perception. This is wise attention. Don't try to analyze perceptions or think about them at all. Just bring wise attention back to the direct encounter. When we try to talk our way out of it or think our way out of it, it's like the mind is a ghost, and it's like a ghost fighting a ghost. But with wise attention, it can really just bypass all the conceptual thinking and come right back to the source of the perception, and it just cuts all the extra. I'll give you an example. This summer, I was staying in a house uh, of a friend in Washington State on on an island, a lovely place, and one evening I was the only one there, and it actually felt quite safe. I mean, I hadn't, didn't have any worry about intruders or anything. But one evening I was in the bathroom washing my face, and I heard this kind of banging noise outside. So again, the, the mind colored with ignorance. I couldn't recognize that sound, but immediately, of course, the mind had to supply a perception, whether it knew what it was or not, 
If there was no ignorance, we would just go, oh, hearing, I don't know what that is. That's like clarity. But you oh, hearing, I don't know what it is. It must be somebody breaking in. And immediately this rush of fear. And I was trying to, to just keep on washing my face, but the thoughts were going, it couldn't be somebody breaking in. I know it's perfectly safe here. This woman has lived here for years. I feel perfectly, it couldn't possibly be. And of course, it's like fighting a ghost with a ghost. The fear is just streaming up, getting stronger and stronger. I couldn't bear it. I had to open the door, go out and look. Of course, there was nobody there. So, okay, nobody's there. I go back in, shut the door. Again, the fear starts. Oh, somebody's breaking in, and the thoughts would start. I said, why don't I try um, what I'm always talking about, wise attention? I took my attention right back to feeling my hands in the water, feeling the washcloth. It's amazing. As soon as I would come back to direct contact with that moment's contact, because the sound wasn't happening anymore, the fear's gone. Just being with what is. No extras, no interpretation. As soon as a thought would come up, yeah, but what was that sound? The bare perception itself. We can be free of this tormenting struggle that we have with the sense door of thinking. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.